This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we have a phenomenal guest, someone I'm really excited to have on the program, mostly because it's very seldom that we get to talk to somebody from the New York Times. That's right. Connor Doherty is on the show, author, first and foremost, of the book Golden Gates, The Housing Crisis and a Reckoning for the American Dream that came out in 2020, came out last year. Right. And an economics reporter for the New York Times, covering the housing beat on the West Coast mainly. Very, very relevant, of course, to uh, the show. Yeah, and, and to Vancouver, yeah. of course. But Matt, why don't we start by talking about, because this book that Connor wrote It's an recently. important book. It's clearly an important book. If you can just give the highlights here of some of the awards that this publication has won. Well, it's a Time 100 must-read book of 2020. It's a New York Times book review editor's choice. It was named Top 30 Must-Read Books of 2020 by the New York Post and one of the 10 best business books of 2020 by Fortune, just to name a few. Uh, no big whoop. No big whoop. Pretty important <laughs> book. Connor was uh, has been to Vancouver. He's has, a fan has of Vancouver. Skateboarded around Vancouver. Yeah, and no, it's great talking to him, and he has some specific thoughts about Vancouver. So great to have Connor on the show. Stay tuned for that. 
But before we get to our talk with Connor, Adam, there's a few things going on here uh, around the office that we got to cover. Right. Yeah. One is you have actually gained weight for summer in anticipation of summer and not muscle, muscle weight. Like no. You're just, what? Well, and I'm what? not, I'm not fat shaming. I'm just saying no. you're, but I am ashamed. You, you brought I up. am getting fatter. Yeah. Yes. Well, no, the thing was actually both of us have received, and this is small victory is not a sponsor of this podcast. No. But most of our listeners will know Small Victory, a local bake shop. I think they've got a lot of locations they've now. They've got but three. The one we're familiar with are, is Yale Town. I'm now familiar with more than one. Oh, uh, Yale, right. Breakfast, Homer, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> Homer, Homer is one on right. Homer Street. There's one on Granville now that they know me by name. Both of us got gift cards for Small Victory. Yeah. And Pat- like significant gift cards. From a past guest, we really appreciate it. He thanks us for coming on yeah. the show, but I've never received such a large amount of, of for money a bakery. for a bakery. That's right. And uh, $150 I've spent in the last week at Small Victory. It's incredible. And Are you, uh, you must be I'm done. out of money. A, I'm done. I'm out of money. And B, yeah, it's going to take months to uh, sort this problem out. So, okay, we're just coming up on beach season. It's a little bit rainy this week, but... I anticipate the good weather's you, coming back. You anticipate shirts coming off at some There's, point soon? It's going to be a tarps off summer around here. I'm a little bit You're concerned. You're at F45. At, what is this? F45? Uh, yeah. Day. Well, I and again, not sponsored by the show. <laughs> Future not, sponsor. The show is not sponsored by F45, but- I've been trying to turn it around. Yeah, you're feeling great. I'm feeling good. I'm trying to get in. A, it's it's quick. It's a 45-minute workout. That's yeah. what the 45 and F45 stands right, for. Right, right. But anyways, I've been trying to fit that in. You've been trying to fit I literally multiple feel, donuts yeah, in your face. I feel like, uh, yeah, just a big ball of butter right now, which is unfortunate. Right. I think they call it a butter ball. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Speaking of, I was actually thinking of butter beam. But did you see, I, I didn't watch this fight. But did you hear about this Jake Paul? I I know. I just heard it was embarrassing. Is it crazy that – because I almost got trapped paying for it. Like I felt like I saw it come up in a news feed and I was like, maybe we should get this tonight, like Sunday night. Just an event. Yeah, it's just just an event. You need something. And immediately Sabrina, my wife, shut it down. And and I'm glad she did because the next day, it's like I've fallen for many of those before. Like just a complete nothing burger that costs you like sixty bucks yeah. to watch. You know what it's I fell spectacle. for on Sunday night? What's that? The Junos. Oh man, <laughs> I had <laughs> to turn I, off the I, CBC. I wasn't at home, but I was listening to the radio, and I think I texted my wife and said, "Hey, record the Junos." Ten seconds in, I was like, "What am I doing? This is yeah. insane!" Right after like the Jan Arden. Oh my god! Oh the Jan. Yeah, yeah. no, I good. didn't even get that far. And <laughs> bless her heart, she's. Uh, one of Canada's best. Yeah, but, uh, but here's here's one more thing that I fell for is jumping on the bandwagon of the Jets. Game <laughs> I one, feel like we went out series last week two saying Jets in four. Right, right. I didn't mean they would be swept. Uh, <laughs> before we haven't even come up with a second podcast. Like last week, we were excited because the series was about to begin. In a week, it's over. And this, and now it's like hockey's a long. Right. It's a memory that I hardly even think about. Uh, right. Anyway, that was yeah terrible. On to on to brighter uh, notes here. We've got a fantastic show. We got to mention a couple things too. One is the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate 
podcast is just popping off. Oh, yeah. Corey's uh, hitting it out of the park. Corey's doing a great job over there. So if you are not listening to the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast, you should be because your real estate knowledge of Vancouver is only complete if you're looking at residential and commercial. And it is a phenomenal show. A new episode went out earlier this week. He comes out a few days before us every week. So we're the chaser. Yeah. I would say. Yeah, exactly. He, he's, he's the shot where the chaser. Yeah. And he's just finishing up, I think, the kind of commercial 101 kind of aspects. And then he's hitting takeoff there. And man, some of the guests he has lined up are fantastic. So definitely check out the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. And last but not least, Adam, this podcast is sponsored, as always, by Oakland Realty. This is our brokerage, the best real estate brokerage in the city of Vancouver. Great culture, great resources. Head over to oakwind.com slash join. Type in VRP2020. That's oakwind.com slash join. Type in VRP2020. If you are, of course, in the real estate industry as a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody looking to make a change, you will meet up with the gang, Michael Morgan and the gang, and get a huge incentive by typing in VRP 2020. Thank you very much, Oakland. And maybe, Adam, we should cut to our talk with Connor Doherty, author of Golden Gates, The Housing Crisis and a Reckoning for the American Dream, and an economics reporter at the New York Times. This is a fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed this chat with Connor. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with Connor Doherty, economics reporter at the New York Times and author of Golden Gates, The Housing Crisis and a Reckoning for the American Dream. Welcome, Connor. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I love Vancouver, so I'm happy to be on with you guys. I've gone up there, I think, two or three times for stories and always about your crazy housing market, so (laughs) we have a lot to talk about. Right on. Well, yeah, thanks for taking the time again, Connor. Maybe can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm a reporter at the New York Times, and I wrote this book about housing. And um, I guess maybe the best place to start is I grew up in the Bay Area, and I went to college in Southern California, and then I ultimately I moved to New York after studying my journalism career. And I moved back home after 10 years. Uh, moved back to the Bay Area. And I guess in a way, and the housing thing here was just so crazy. It's always been crazy in California, but it just had never been crazier. And we started having these protests over gentrification, where people were holding up these Google buses. It was sort of a famous international event. And, you know, the world just felt so this so angry here. You know, everybody was so furious at each other, and, and this housing had just really permeated every aspect of life. It's you know, the politics, the, the homelessness, the, um, the way everyone's existence just seems to be so burdened by the cost of living here. And I just sort of eventually wanted to write something about that. And anyway, I guess that's kind of how my personal history with the Bay Area sort of blended with the reporting. And that's kind of who I am and how I came to this topic. As we all discussed, before we put the tape on, I grew up skateboarding. And while that sounds very irrelevant, I think when you skateboard, you spend a lot of time just like looking at spaces and evaluating them and thinking about how the concrete feels in a schoolyard versus how it feels in a historic district. You know, you're always thinking about what's rough and what's smooth and 
how cars move. And, and I think inevitably it sort of brings out a certain urbanism in you and makes you very you know, attuned to how cities work and what their sort of underlying rhythms are. So I think housing, I've always been inclined to sort of write about cities in some capacity and housing just became my most relevant way in. That's really interesting and I think totally accurate, right? Yeah, Never really I, I can tell you where all the cobblestone roads are in the city of Vancouver <laughs> from skateboarding. But I can also tell you, you spend a lot of time also, I think, skateboarding just hanging around in various areas that you wouldn't otherwise visit, like, right? Yeah, uh, hanging around. It gives you like the opportunity to just spend time in areas. Yeah, you spend time in areas. You get a good sense of like how like the lunch hour works. Like, I remember growing up, you know, I would go skateboarding in Embarcadero in San Francisco, and you would, the plaza would just fill up with people around the lunch hour, and you'd sort of know, like, okay, it's like, don't skate then because you'll, like, run into someone. or I mean, there were conflicts over that because not everyone observed that law. But, you know, you just, there's, like, a, the way that traffic works and the way that, um, you know, every skateboarder loves Christmas because no security guards are working then. And, um, (laughs) you know, I mean, but that's like a thing, right? That's like a whole thing, you know? Um, Like one thing I've always been fascinated with is like, if you have a two lane street, it's so much more pleasant than a four lane street. Even if the four lane street has all these different things that, um, you know, attempt to slow down traffic or accommodate bikes or whatever. Like once you add four lanes, just like the, feel of that street becomes much more highway-like, no matter what else they do. Right. And, you know, it's just like, I think you're always conscious of how you navigate things. Another thing I think about skateboarding is you start to, like, interact with more people. I mean, I suppose probably people would look back on this with some degree of regret now, but old skateboarding videos, you just always end up encountering people kind of come over to you. Sometimes they're homeless people. Sometimes they're you know, business people, like sometimes, you know, or people in a suit or whatever, you know, you know what I mean? Like you just, right. people like come and talk to you and they interact with you. And I think you sort of like get this like wide view of the city experience that way, you know? Um, yeah. And anyway. It, but you know, it's also a, a very democratic kind of sport too, in the sense that like snowboarding is completely different, right? Cause the barrier to entry is 15, hundred dollars or two thousand dollars right and a pass and and going to a mountain where skateboarding it's like really all you need is is a deck and you know trucks and wheels and you're you're on the way yeah and sort of reflecting you know how cities work and how public space works skateboarding became much more diverse when street skateboarding became the kind of predominant form of the sport and the reason for that is as you just sort of said with snowboarding, if you wanted to be really into like massive ramps, you know, the things that, you know, Tony Hawk does, you kind of had to be able to go to a skate park and just think about, so what would you need to have that? Well, you'd need a lot of land because to build a ramp like that requires like a lot of cheap land. And that means you're probably driving out there. And then usually it's built in some sort of private facility. So it's like a club, you know, you got to pay a monthly admission or, daily admission or a monthly pass or, you know, something like that, right? And so the ramp skateboarding, though there are obvious exceptions to this, has traditionally been a a more higher-end, more white sport. Mm -hmm. And the sort of ways in which real estate works and the business model around that is 
determinant of, of that. But anyway, you can sort of see how the price of land dictates so many things. And obviously artists and other people have seen the same you know, phenomenon with studio space and whatever else. So. so Connor, so why do you want to write about the housing crisis? Well, I think, like I said, I came home to the Bay Area and it just struck me that this was everything that was happening. You know, like the housing just, just, it was everything. You know what I mean? I mean, you would have a, talk to somebody about like their bad breakup or something. And we live together and we have a rent controlled apartment. How are we going to work this out? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that, that thing you hear, you hear in New York too. And so all the, it just kind of permeates life here. So I'm also an economics reporter, right? So one of the things that I thought was really interesting is a number of economists had started talking about this idea that our inability to grow, you know, the, the, the difficulty that California has had growing is, is stunting the economy, you know, because if you think about it, you know, there's all these amazing companies, Google, whatever, that are in the Bay Area, and they're kind of like the economic engines of our time. But people talk about living in the Bay Area as if it's like some insane luxury. And that's really weird, right? You know, like it was not true that when Detroit was the sort of economic engine of America that people were like, oh, you live in Detroit? That's so... I mean, even when it was a really prosperous place. They, right. You know, they were building the middle class. Different, same thing with L.A. in the 60s and 50s, right? So we have found ways in the past to grow our economy and do it without pricing everybody out. And so this new thing that like, you know, these really prosperous cities are like impossible to access. That's like a new thing and a noteworthy thing and a troubling thing. So that was really interesting to me. Now I'm kind of a narrative writer. I want to write stories about people. And so even though I had been studying all this stuff in the economy and reading all these papers, I just could never really find a way to write about it. that was fun or, or really, I thought captivating. So I could never find a person who really like, it was always in data. It was always like, oh, you know, the US GDP is lower than it could be. And we're wasting resources by overspending on housing. You know, it's like all these like abstract concepts. Mm -hmm. And um, so one day I was meeting with Jeremy Stoppelman, who's the CEO of Yelp. And we were talking about something unrelated. And at the end of the conversation, I said, Hey, I've heard you're really into housing and you're very troubled by this housing problem. Um, Lack of housing in the Bay Area, you know, are you doing anything for this? You know, he's a pretty rich guy. You know, he's got some influence. And he's like, well, I I gave money to this woman named Sonia. And she runs a group called BARF, which stands for the Bay Area Renters Federation. And I thought that was really weird. I was like, BARF? You know, like, this is such a... Uh, acronym. And also, it, it wasn't just that it was a crazy acronym, it was also that this was a very serious guy, and the fact that he, you know, thought it was a good idea to fund this thing, and that he was excited about it, or thought it was promising, or whatever, or the opposite, that he was so desperate, and he thought the sort of more traditional political route wouldn't be effective. It just struck me as odd, right? So, he told me, oh, well, this woman, Sonia... I meet Sonia one morning for coffee and she shows up in like a crown Victoria and uh, it was like this orange car with a like glitter on it and uh, you know, in the paint and she sort of has this fluorescent outfit on 
And I was like, what the hell is this? You know, like, you know, and she just proceeds to talk about the most deep arcana of zoning policy. And, you know, she, she was just like a very bombastic character who was so interested in zoning. So I started following Sonia around for a story for the New York Times. And she had started calling herself the Yimby for Yes in My Backyard. And she would show up to all these city meetings and would say, I want you to build this development. I want you to build that development. And her sort of mantra at that time was, we have a huge housing shortage, which is what the economists were saying. And the Obama administration was saying it. You know, all these really serious people were saying this. But he was somebody who was, you know, a little bit more renegade, kind of adopting this message. And so I followed her around. I wrote this story on her for the New York Times. And I thought that would be it. You know, it was like, here's this story. It ran. That's that, right? Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks after the story ran, or maybe a couple of months or two, I don't know, not long after, though, I got a call from a guy in Boulder, Colorado, and he said, oh, we're going to have a national convention of Yimbis, like Sonia. We read your story, and we had already been thinking about doing this, but you realized we're going to make her our keynote speaker now. And... What was fascinating to me is he was like, you know, kind of like we didn't realize that there were so many other people in the country who were sort of worried about this same thing. So I was like, well, this sounds kind of nuts. And I go to fly to Boulder to go to this convention. And there were people from everywhere that you think of as a housing trouble today. There was someone there from Vancouver, YVR Yimby. Then there was people from Boston, from Austin, Texas, from Seattle from obviously throughout the Bay Area, you know, I think 200 something people in this hotel, you know, ballroom talking about zoning policy in their city and, you know, the lack of housing in their city and sort of the difficulty of building housing in their city. And that's what fascinated me is that it was like, okay, these are all local problems, right? Like when you would talk to people, they would give you, you know, their then Vancouver take on it and it would explain how Canadian law works or something. Or, you know, Boston, they would be talking about, oh, in Massachusetts, we have this law. And, you know, everyone had their particular thing, right? But it all amounted to the same thing. You know, it was like they, they all thought that their city was so different and their processes were so unique. But it all ended up with the same thing, which is there's not enough housing and a tremendous affordability crisis in this nimbyism thing that people hated new housing near them was this kind of thread that ran through all of these places, no matter what country they were in, no matter what uh, their provincial or state laws were, you know, it just didn't really matter. That was a huge issue. And so I just thought, okay, I would say that that was probably the moment when I thought I might have a book because I was like, okay, this is like not just a Bay Area thing. Now, the book heavily focuses on the Bay Area, and that was a decision that I sort of felt like I had to make because to really understand a local issue, you have to kind of unpack it locally. Mm-hmm. I felt like I could have picked any place, but that I ultimately had to pick a place. So the book begins with Sonia, and then it moves to a 15-year-old girl who's about to be evicted from her apartment. Um, then you meet a suburban guy in a suburban government who's sort of trying to get the suburb to accept new housing, but is, you know, not having much luck with that. 
And then there's a nun who's trying to do a uh, community land trust, which a nonprofit will go and buy land and sort of designate it as affordable in perpetuity. So there's all these different people. And there's a developer doing modular housing, you know, trying to use kind of technology to build housing in a factory and then assemble it, you know, kind of like Lego bricks. So I, I wanted to find sort of this like range of experience, you know, a developer, a very poor person, a um, kind of young professional, you know, all these different experiences and sort of try to show that for a region to operate successfully, we need to be accommodating all these people for housing. And I thought that doing it in one place would sort of help show how that current runs through all of society. So anyway. And the narrative style, like as a way in, I think is super engaging. It's not a phenomenal read. One thing that strikes me is that, you know, you left the Bay Area, you went to school, you moved to New York, you came back and housing had always been expensive, but, but there was a new thing going on, right? Something was different, as you put it. And then that's something that's different is actually different in places across North America, right? Like you mentioned Detroit during its heyday, not having these same issues, but Boston right now has these issues. In your mind, how did we get here? Like, how did we get to essentially a perpetual housing crisis? That's a good question. Well, I think two things happened. One is that we do have this, a different structure in our economy. And that is not to be discounted. That may be changing, but we'll see. I'm skeptical. Over the past, say, 40 years, the economy has kind of bifurcated into this so-called knowledge sector, which is kind of typified by software engineering or finance, you know, people who work with their brain in a computer to kind of create products of some kind or move money or, you know, do something, you know, it's like a high-end skill. I should say high-income skill. And then on the other side of the economy, sort of this lower-paid service work. So childcare, this does not mean it's low. It means it's low-paid. It's still tremendously important. But, you know, retail services, childcare services, all the things that people do that require some kind of proximity or personal touch. And what we thought of as the middle class in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which is sort of the manufacturing work, you know, high-value-add factory work, that has kind of been greatly diminished through a combination of automation and offshoring. So our economy has become very centered around these, they call it the barbell economy, these very high-wage professions and these very low-wage professions. But what's sort of unique about these things is that these workers have to be next to each other, right? Because the service class job is, again, it it is almost always something that requires proximity. It's house cleaning, it's, you know, hair cutting, it's, you know, all these kinds of things. And so that structural piece of the economy is very important because it has created a situation in which cities have had, you know, a lot of the growth. I mean, two-thirds of the economic activity in the U.S. is concentrated in 100 metro areas. 
And so all the jobs and a lot of the wealth has migrated to these very high-value places. And even though service work pays more in those places, it doesn't pay enough to make up for the tremendous cost of living. And so, you know, whereas manufacturing work was a little different, that, you know, it was more export-driven. And so you could, you know, have a smaller town built around a factory and, you know, could accommodate a kind of growing middle class in that place. And if you wanted to build another factory, you know, you went 100 miles down the road and built another. You know what I mean? It, it, there was a, a more, it was spread out more. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had a less intensity of land. So that's one huge thing. And that's an international thing. I mean, obviously, Amer- you know, but around the country, around the world, every, you know, big kind of city you've heard of has had, you know, some element of this take place. And it's, I think the other thing, though, is that we have not really changed how we build. You know, we leave single-family neighborhoods. We don't have a good way to rebuild our cities. And this is not necessarily a new thing, right? So it's not a coincidence that all the great redevelopment projects that have happened, you know, throughout history, have either been the work of a natural disaster or a man-made disaster like a war, you know, or, or were done by a dictator, basically. You know, like when they rebuilt Paris in the 1800s, I mean, it was basically one person was like, get out of the way. We're going to cut the street. They didn't have a lot of community meetings. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So in New York, the book, The Power Broker, uh, details how, you know, New York's massive redevelopment under Robert Moses, was basically done by a dictator. You know, he lived outside the government and was able to basically just do these projects with or without any approval. So rebuilding cities is a really hard thing to do in every culture and every era. And so this, you know, how can we, how can we rebuild our cities or redevelop them in an organic way um, is kind of like a question of our time. Now, there's a lot of people who we can talk about this in a little in a minute, but you know, just to preview, there's a lot of people who think that telecommuting will change some of this. It may, I don't know. But so the first time I went to Vancouver, I was uh, at the Wall Street Journal at the time, and I wanted to write about accessory dwelling units or laneway homes, as you guys call them. And in the states, we call them ADUs or accessory dwelling units. And I knew that this was a very exciting area for light development. But at the time, I couldn't, you know, there wasn't a huge phenomenon here the way there was there. And, you know, to do the story, like I had to be able to go to a place where, you know, you could see this happening everywhere. You know, you had to be able to go to a street and be like, there's 10 laneway homes. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I, and you couldn't do that in the States at that time. You can now. And so I think there are things like ADUs or laneway homes, as you guys call them, that are opening the door a little bit for this new kind of light redevelopment of cities. You know, there have been some things where, you know, they'll take a larger home and split it into apartments. So, you know, we're starting to see ways in which we're intensifying our use of cities. But I think that, you know, we're probably going to have to figure out how to do that. Or rebuild new cities. I think our, so if I were to just summarize how we got here, I mean, one is our economy became much more unequal. 
and that makes it much harder to create one housing market that can work for everybody. And then the second is we've not been able to build enough housing to accommodate the job growth in these kind of big urban centers that have been very uh, prosperous. Right. And like in Vancouver, we talk about laneway homes like as gentle density, but it sounds like if I'm understanding the way you're thinking about it, like the idea of gentle density or increasing density slowly over time potentially doesn't solve this. Like there needs to be a more kind of revolutionary approach. I think gentle density can kind of work. It kind of depends on how it plays out, right? You'd probably need some cultural shifts as well, right? Um, But maybe that will just naturally happen. But if you truly started building laneway homes in, you know, like 50% of the homes, single-family homes in Vancouver or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, well, then you start to, you know, that moves the needle Mm -hmm. a little bit. And I do think that both there and here, there have been people who really tried to turn the construction process into a more industrial process, you know, where people go build like half the laneway home. I think there's a company called Smallworks there. I hope it's still there, but... Um, yeah, we, we've had you know, them on the company. show actually a long time. That was yeah, a long time ago. Jake, I, uh, I met Jake when I was there for that story. But anyway, uh, you know, there there are ways that, I think as that industry matures or grows, you will start to see it become less artisanal and more production oriented. Mm -hmm. As that happens, you will probably start to see the homes become cheaper and easier to build and, you know, you know, like faster. Right. So, and then you might start seeing new economic models. Like, you know, I don't know, can you get a block? I'm making this all up. Right. But, you know, can you, do six projects in one neighborhood and get somewhere at the same time and like start to get somewhere like an assembly line. You know, my point is, is that I think if you start to get large numbers of units and you start to do them in a more modular fashion or, you know, production fashion, a more industrial like fashion, you could start to make some headway on it. I mean, doubling the density is not a small thing. Right. 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 One thing, thinking about your book and and kind of the way you went about it, and I think anyone listening will potentially know the answer to this question based on uh, your answer to how we got here. But, you know, you see people lament the commodification of housing, right? That it's investors are the problem, developers are the problem, NIMBYs are the problem. In your story, are there villains and, and are there heroes? I don't. I guess I didn't want you to think that they were villains or heroes. That said, well, this gets off into a whole other area, but um, I think that it's a collective action problem. And a collective action problem is a problem where, you know, the only way to solve the problem is for everyone to do a little bit, right? Now, we know that if we had more compact cities and if we drove less, we could make a huge impact on climate change. Right, that you know, one of the biggest problems. Obviously, there's lots of things we can do with coal and other things, but if we could have people drive alone less, right? I'm not saying nobody can ever drive alone again. I'm just saying, you know, if, if we just made a conscious effort to not do that, we would make a significant dent, right? But but it doesn't work unless everybody does it, mm-hmm. right? So. 
similar to housing. I mean, I think if you told somebody who lives in a lovely single-family home, uh, if I build an apartment complex next to you um, and block your view, we will solve climate change and the affordability crisis. I think I like to think that most people would say, you know what, I will make that sacrifice. You're right. That's that, you know, but that's not how it works. It's that the one apartment complex next to them will be one little piece of a, you know what I mean? It's this one little inconvenience. It's this one big inconvenience for a person, for one person that will have a a tiny little effect on this problem. But to have a big effect on the problem, we need a lot of people. You know, it needs to be widespread, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that housing is sort of your classic collective action problem. You know, if you're someone who is really mad about an apartment complex being built next to you, that is an existential thing to you. You are so angry. It's, you, know, you will fight it with, like, all your fury. And you'll never sort of appreciate that if that happens a thousand times over the course of the entire city, then you have a huge housing affordability problem. Right. So I will say, though, that and this is getting a little bit on a tangent. There was a guy, a develop, uh, an investor who was buying kind of affordable housing, renovating it and upscaling it and evicting people along the way. I think that person came off somewhat as a villain. I think I tried to make it clear that the idiotic policy of California basically had invited him to do that. They're essentially encouraging that business model, right? By making uh, old housing so expensive. But I think that it probably came, you know, the investor is not portrayed particularly well, but then in the very next chapter or the preceding chapter, I forget which, the guy building modular housing is presented pretty well. You know, the investor who just, you know, eyes crappy old apartment buildings, evicts everyone and raises the prices after a coat of paint. You know, I, I don't see that as inherently as productive as this guy trying to build a whole new company to revolutionize how housing is built. Now, maybe the guy, and the truth is, the guy building the company to revolutionize, he might go bankrupt. You know, it's a very audacious idea. It's very capital intensive. You know, it's a huge risk. Um, whereas this other guy basically knows if he can, you know, execute his business plan in a relatively quick timeline and with, you know, interest rates as they are, I mean, they will almost guaranteed make money, right? So, but I just, I guess I kind of wanted to make kind of a subliminal comment on how I think that, you know, those kind of more productive type things where you're really trying to solve a problem, but that's the kind of business. I'm much more enamored with, you know, I should say investing is bad or anything like that. I mean, my dad's a landlord, right? I'm just, it's just to say that this kind of buy and evict business model, it's one of the things that makes people hate business, you know, whereas this other guy building this amazing factory, I mean, you can't help but be fascinated when you go there, you know, just seeing how the, you know, here comes this piece of plywood on an assembly line and, after 22 steps, it's an apartment that you're walking around with appliances and everything in it. So it's just it's just a remarkable thing to see. Connor, if if we don't solve this housing crisis, what what is at stake? Well, I think a lot's at stake. I think that our culture and uh, 
I think having a cohesive society, at least as we know it in North America, is having a, a broad middle class and having a sense that everyone can, I mean, maybe it's fiction, right? But, it, you know, having a sense that there is a shot for everyone to get a decent, comfortable life. And I think when we don't solve the housing crisis, we make ourselves more unequal. We create neighborhoods with, you know, that are off limits to everybody. Schools that are off limits to uh, neighborhoods that are off limits all but the very richest. Schools that are off limits to all but the very richest. And then we, you know, you start to knock on social problems to that. You know, then suddenly you know, nobody knows who their own workers are, and people don't live in the same neighborhood as their police officers. And you, you know, you just you end up with this cleaving that could be very, very toxic. And you're already sort of seeing this, obviously, in the States. I think on top of that, you end up with a less well-functioning economy because you, know, you, you aren't giving people a chance. You know, people are spending so much extra money on housing. That's money they're not spending on saving. That's money they're not investing into new ideas. You know, you're, you're creating all this artificial cost. You know, you're you're basically saying, oh, nobody can build anything over there because, you know, I don't want them to. And then, you know, through that process playing itself over and over again, you're forcing people to spend more and more money for land that is kind of artificially scarce. Mm-hmm. And I think that could leave us all worse off. So, yeah, I guess that I think that's at stake. And I think also... There's a rebirth that happens when cities change and, and we, we sort of go through new cycles and I think we've stunted that process. It's funny, going back to skateboarding a little bit, well, my little local neighborhood newsletter asked if they could interview me about the book. And uh, I'm talking like literally the thing they just throw on your doorstep. It means a fun little newsletter, it's three or four pages, but you know, it's it's not it's not even put out in the mail. It's just they go and give it to residents of my neighborhood. And uh, it's done by our, our local planning council. And uh, there's these skateboarding curbs, these curbs uh, that I skate, and they're, it's like known. There's all these people there skating every day, every weekend before the pandemic and every day now. But they're talking about building housing there. It's a parking lot below a transit station, and they're talking about you know demolishing it and building housing there along the transit station. I said, would you be unhappy to, to lose your favorite skateboarding spot. And I said, you know, sure, but I don't really care, right? I think that one of the things that I loved about skateboarding is there's like this impermanence to it. You know, there are these spots that you go to and you have these amazing times there and you build all these friendships and you skate there and, you know, it's just all these it becomes this really important part of life. And then it just gets demolished one day. <laughs> um, but then you move on. You know, you go somewhere else and you find something new and you make new memories there. And, you know, and I think that you get very used to that cycle of things being destroyed and rebuilt and you kind of like start to like it, you know, like uh, I have all these memories of, that are very encased in time in places that don't exist anymore or, you know, aren't physically the same anymore. Mm-hmm. And I don't, 
I don't feel like those memories are sullied in some way because the place doesn't exist anymore, right? You know, and I think that's true of cities, right? Like they should always be changing and changing form and we can make new memories. You know what I mean? Like I just think that there, this can be exciting too. I mean, it doesn't all have to be lost, you know? And I think that when people talk about nimbyism and all this stuff, it's like, it's always talked in this dour language of, oh, you know, you have to accept the thing next to you. And, you know, but I think it can be positive. I think change can be fun and interesting. And, and uh, you know, one of the things I've always observed is like, there isn't a real political affiliation with NIMBYs. Or, or yes, in my backyard. You know, I always, right. I always joke to people like, you know, I mean, you go to a, a very conservative part of Texas, and you will find all sorts of people who will tell you that, you know, they, they will tell you on the one hand, oh, we don't like regulation, and we don't like the government telling us what to do, and then we'll turn right around and say, but we will find a way to get the government to regulate every little aspect of where and how a home is built because they want their neighborhood to look like how they want it to look like, right? And then you will go to a very liberal part of, say, Berkeley, and they'll say, oh, we're concerned about those less fortunate than us, and we really need to build affordable housing for them, but don't build it anywhere near me. Uh, and I'm very concerned about climate change, but please build as much sprawl as possible because I don't want an apartment complex near me, right? And so you, you can't, when you get to the local level, people's kind of national political identity just like sort of crumbles. But on the flip side, I'll meet people who, and I, I, it's, it's kind of funny. I always say to people, like, if I were to describe the, like, the personality traits that kind of profile somebody that's like a, a yes in my backyard type, they're just always kind of chill, <laughs> for lack of a better term. <laughs> like, they're just always like, well, you know, go build an apartment, but it'll be fine. You know what I mean? They're just like, well, you know, like, yeah, maybe that view will be gone, but. I don't know. Maybe they'll build another store because there'll be more business here. Like, so they're just like, huh, you know, like, you know, they just, they just, they, they look at something and they don't imagine the worst possible outcome. Which is, so there's a certain kind of person who sees like an abandoned lot and then someone wants to build an apartment complex there and they can only, I don't know, for whatever reason, their imagination can only see, oh, what if a murderer moves there? Or what if somebody takes my parking stall? Yes, exactly. You know, and that is that is the only thing they can see. And then there is another kind of person who's just kind of like, well, you know, I'm sure it'll all be fine, right? You know, and I've never been able to peg a particular political identity around either of those. You know, they're very liberal people who, for some reason, are just scared of new things around them. And then there's very conservative people, and and vice versa. So uh, it's, it's almost like a deeper kind of anxiety type thing rather than a particular affiliation. Mm -hmm. Which undoubtedly makes it more, more difficult to solve in terms of intractable problems or maybe not actually thinking of political identity, but, uh, but it doesn't sound easy. I live in a liberal neighborhood and uh, the no to mega towers signs throughout are, are something I always notice. Um, and they're definitely not conservative people. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I totally so now I would like to talk to you guys for a minute, which is to say, I think Vancouver is unique. I'm curious what you guys think about this, because the foreign buying thing is a big issue in every 
prosperous cities, San Francisco, they talk about it, New York, they talk about it, London, whatever, pick your place. And and it is a part of the economy there. I'm, I'm not in any way denying that. I do, I do not think that San Francisco's housing problem is significantly a problem with commoditization of housing or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's it's got, it's obviously like, there are empty condos here. You know what I mean? They, they mm-hmm. do exist. I, you know, there's no denying that. In Vancouver, it seemed like you guys really did have a legitimate empty condo problem. You, you know what I mean? Like that, I, I mean, you guys are building a lot of housing and yet you still have a huge housing crisis. So I'm just curious what you guys think about that. Because it's, it's, Vancouver is not one of those places where I go, oh, you know. Now, maybe you're not building enough of the type, right? I mean, you obviously have these, you still have vast swaths of that city that have open land and single-family homes. But it didn't feel like there was an undersupply quite to the same degree. I'm curious what you guys think. Yeah, I, I think like you know we talk about that a lot on this program about. Um, I'm sure. Yeah, like that's almost that's the conversation almost every week. Um, but the the biggest thing you know what we hear from people from the development community is to get housing online. You know it takes it takes a very long time. Our zoning, especially in the municipality of Vancouver, is highly regulated. It takes a long time. Land costs are very expensive. There's a lot of risk. Um, now building costs are, are expensive. We have a lot of um, issues around around uh, what's required for, for building, especially um, in the lower mainland, like NBC building code. So, I mean, the general consensus at least, um, and the numbers suggest so, is that we are actually underbuilt based on, on the demand. So, I mean, in, in that regard, and then, of course, we're a landlocked region as well. So sprawling is... is is a challenging thing for for our region, but it is notable that um, you know if you come here from somewhere else, anyone I know from somewhere else remarks uh, almost to the person on the number of cranes. Like yeah. we're we're consistently building. <laughs> I think uh, just uh, just not enough, and that even I think is borne out in the you know the the vacancy rate on the rental side. Like for years we were under one percent, right? Um, yeah. Which is just not healthy. And, and and it should go without saying, but I mean, I think the biggest thing is, is a lot of our, a lot of the, the building happening is, uh, for like mixed use, uh, strata residential, like for sale market, market condos. Um, whereas like in an area like Seattle, from our understanding, you know, developers are incentivized to build more market rental, which, um, I think that's been a challenge here is getting developers to build to build rental inventory. So. Yeah, I assume because you have this huge demand uh, from foreign buyers, right? Um, I don't know. I, 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 Vancouver was a place that I felt like the situation was sufficiently complicated that I didn't want to, Anyway, it just I, I there's think easier stories to write. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it's interesting, right? Because and and we've had the foreign buyers tax since since 2016. Um, we've had an empty homes tax uh, since what, probably 2017, 2018, and a and a provincial speculation and vacancy tax, which is essentially a for most of the province. Like they've taken a lot of measures to try and rectify that 
that potential situation. And it, you know, one of the things that a lot of people are pointing out right now during COVID is, you know, housing has went crazy during COVID and, and investors are, you know, for a lot of the last year weren't buying in large part because of, you know, rental freezes and the risks involved, I guess, during COVID in taking on tenants. And then foreign buyers, like the, the last push hasn't, they, they've just, nobody talks about them anymore. It's been local people moving through the market. It's, it's really peculiar because, um, you know, we've had kind of shocks, I think, uh, policy-induced shocks to the market where, you know, they'll introduce a new demand-side measure and then the market kind of retracts for a couple months and then it starts picking up again. And it, I don't, I don't know, it definitely, it's an interesting market. Never have we been in a situation where it feels like there's an oversupply, that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, No, 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 no. But anyway, I just think it's one of the fascinating markets. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, Connor, we, we have this uh, quick segment called the Five Wire, five lighthearted questions to end the show. Can you stick around for that? Sure. What is one book, it doesn't have to be a housing book, what is one book you would recommend everyone read listening? God, I read so many books that it's just so hard. I guess if I had to pick one book for the kind of audience that you guys have, I would pick The Power Broker. It's 600,000 words about New York City, quite a slog, <laughs> but it's very lively. It's, it's, it's fascinating. What is one piece of advice you'd give your 18-year-old self? I guess I would probably tell myself to like chill out, listen more, things like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm a very high anxiety, so I I would probably have told myself to just calm down. Right on. Uh, and the last the last question for you, Connor. Something you have purchased for under fifteen hundred dollars in the last couple of years that has transformed your life in a positive way. Okay. I cannot believe I'm going to say this. Uh, well, actually, actually, no man, I think that's over fifteen hundred dollars. Um, now we got. Now we, no, no, we, we got. Let's open it, it up. Let's open it, it up. <laughs> I hate saying this, but my wife got a Peloton. Yeah. And I have to say, I loved it. Like, <laughs> I didn't want to love it. I didn't <laughs> want to love it. But there's something about, and I'm like kind of a cynical guy. But the like relentless positivity of the people teaching these classes, it's like, it's kind of addicting. And I think when you're kind of like working out and you're trying to like get away from work and everything and during the pandemic, you know, trying to like get your endorphin rush going, it was actually, it was actually like really nice to have this thing, you know, I know it's obviously an expensive item and it sort of is emblematic of of all that's wrong in the world. So I'm embarrassed to say that, but it was, it was really nice having a way to sort of like be physically active while you're stuck at home uh, with two kids. I have two little kids was really nice. Well, well maybe we'll, we'll leave it with that Connor, but uh, how can people find out more about what you're doing? I guess you work for a little known newspaper, uh, the New York yeah. times and uh, presumably golden gates can be purchased basically at any local bookstore or any large scale bookstore as well. But is there a spot that people can reach out or follow you? I'm on Twitter at Connor Doherty and 
Yeah, I mean, I have ConnorDoherty.com, which is just nothing but reviews of the book, so it's not, you know, too exciting. But, um, yeah, I, you know, follow the New York Times, and that's pretty much where I, I do it. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, thank, thanks for taking the time. Yeah. So cool. Great. I will talk to you guys later. Thanks so much. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Connor Doherty, economics reporter at the New York Times and author of Golden Gates, The Housing Crisis and a Reckoning for the American Dream. Really enjoyed this conversation with uh, Connor. And one thing, I don't know if this made it uh, through the editing post-production process here, but we ended up talking to Connor for a very long time. It was probably about a little over an hour, maybe. And so we had to cut quite a few parts. But one thing was the skateboarder as kind of... urban geographer yeah. uh, conversation. And I don't know if it, uh, I haven't listened back to the interview yet, but interesting concept. Um, really, really, it, you know, it's funny. We talked about it from the perspective of skateboarding, uh, but often when people come on the show, cycling has that same kind of That's uh, right. uh, way of kind of, and I've been riding my bike to work uh, inspired by many past guests uh, who ride their bikes uh, to work and use the bike lanes in the city. And I got to say, it is uh not only a great way to get to work, but man, it's engaging in the city that early in the day feels great. And then on the way home, you know, you always kind of run into people or you're on the seawall or whatever, but it's uh, it's just a way better way to commute. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's a good point. And uh, yeah, Connor had a lot of interesting ideas there. That's for sure. Great conversation. And uh, we appreciate his time. What else do we have, Adam, before we go? Uh, we do have, of course, the website, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That's right, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for all things real estate related. There is a couple reasons you should definitely uh, sign up to the weekly mailer, the live wire right now. First off, we have that industrial VIP package available right. for people for on the live wire for Langford, BC. Um, this looks really, really exciting. I have a feeling this is going to sell very quick. VIP access on the live wire. Second, we have private client services. And Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. It's a no obligation research tool. You can sign up for your free account at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That's right. And if you want to talk about that or anything else... Give me a call, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that secret line, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And just a reminder, check out Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Uh, Fantastic episodes. I think we're up to episode five right now, so definitely check that out. Otherwise, have a great week, guys. Absolutely. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.
Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. 